This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as proud as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to the five-year anniversary of Veritas and the beginning of Season 6. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I never expected that what started on December the 5th, 2008 would have taken us this far. Today is December the 5th, 2013, and there's so much more ahead of us. And right from the beginning, let me express my deepest gratitude to all of you who have supported Veritas all these years. The truth journey happens only because of you. Thank you. And for our fifth anniversary and to discuss the upcoming year, we have Cliff High as our special guest, coming up shortly. To listen to part two of tonight's interview and all of our interviews, just go to veritasradio.com and click on the subscribe button. You will receive your login immediately. And for the holidays, why not give the gift of truth or health? Purchase a Veritas or a Sanitas subscription for a loved one. You can purchase a three, six, nine months, or one or two years. Sanitas is the new radio show, and I'm amazed at the response we're getting. You know that everyone wants to live healthier and longer. That is a gift that you know will be put to good use. And starting in January 2014, Veritas and Sanitas will begin airing on terrestrial radio. Where? In New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. More details are coming soon. And for those who have been asking about Season 5 on the futuristic metal case USB drive, 
It is now available. It also includes hundreds of PDFs and documents on health, healing, and survival. And for a limited time, there's free shipping, whether you buy one season or all of them. And there, you can also purchase MMS, especially with this weather. Why do I continue talking about MMS all these years? Because I know it works, and I know many of you have already used it. And also, you know I'm a big advocate of clean and healthy alkaline restructured drinking water that's loaded with beneficial antioxidants and minerals. Click on the water link right on our website and make a huge change in your life in 2014. And to get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Tonight's special guest is a very good friend of Veritas and joins us this very special fifth anniversary. I'm referring to the creator of internet prophetic computer program that predicts or forecasts future events on a global scale via an asymmetric trend analysis report, commonly known by us as the WebBot. You can learn more about Cliff High and purchase his reports by visiting his website at halfpasshuman.com. And to discuss trends for 2014, I would like to welcome Cliff High back to Veritas. Hello, Cliff, and thank you for being with us on our five-year anniversary. Yes, congratulations, and thank you for inviting me. It's very cool. Thank you very much. And as you were telling me, uh, you are being sprayed. There's so much to discuss today, but I'm going to start with with something that a lot of people are seeing more and more, chemtrails. You're seeing that a lot, and it's affecting you health-wise, isn't it? Yes, there's absolutely no question about it. It's been a um, constant battle as the rate of the spraying increases to maintain uh, positive health in the environment. Uh, specifically, I suffer from um, most from sinus problems, but also maybe starting to suffer from uh, joint issues as a result of the heavy uh, exposure to the crud in the chemtrails, strontium, barium, aluminum, and so on. The aluminum is also very worrying because of its impact on the brain being uh, very tightly associated with the onset of Alzheimer's. So it's um, it's been uh, a real struggle. My response has been over the years uh, first off, it, it's incremental. So the first time I got a sinus headache, for instance, no connection whatsoever as far as I knew uh, in my mind to the chemtrails. At that point, I think I was actually unaware of chemtrails uh, uh, at all. This was probably 94 or so. And never had a sinus headache or anything close to it. Thought it was a migraine. And then over the years, it finally dawns on me, you know, as the chemtrail levels increase and the number of her, and frequency and intensity of the sinus headaches increase. Aha, maybe there's a connection here. And uh, sure enough, you can plot it one for one uh, that I get these uh, uh, terrible headaches. And, and I've also gone to the uh, trouble of going out at night with the uh, third generation um, night vision goggles on nights of heavy spraying. And you can see the material coming out of the chemtrails as a an electrostatically sensitive. That is to say, it is picked up by the uh, mechanism of the third generation night vision goggles and it displays it as sort of a fog and you take the goggles off and there's no fog whatsoever this can be any kind of uh, atmospheric conditions and you'll find this is the case whether it's extremely cold and you may have a fog form off the ground that sort of a hoarfrost fog or whether it's in the middle of summer and you, you get these giant elect electrum what i call electro fogs that come rolling down out of the sky 
and they're uh, quasi-cohesive. It seems to hold together. It doesn't want to disperse once it's on the ground. And little puffs of wind blow it all around. And then you'll realize, hmm, I'm breathing, eating, and living in that. And this ain't good. Absolutely. Aluminum associated with uh, Alzheimer's, barium associated with heart conditions, depletes the body of, of potassium, strontium, radioactive, and causes cancer. And I have a, uh, I know somebody who's very high up in, in one of the major airlines, and I asked him the question the other day because he sees them where he is. And he said, it's not us. It's not the commercial airliners. It's a uh, military or somebody else because they fly at a much higher al altitude, about 60,000 feet. But do you think this is for geoengineering or is it for eugenics? There's a real question about that. Um, first off, I know that the chemtrail guys do fly at a higher altitude, and we have proof of this because over the last 20 years, they've forced the commercial flights to fly lower. And it's had a direct uh, impact on the cost of their fuel because the lower they fly, the denser their the air. Right. And thus, the more fuel they use. They used to love to fly in the forty to 50,000 foot range. And now they're being even restricted into there and forced down lower. And a lot of them are wondering why. And it has to do, I think, with the atmospheric alterations that the chemtrails are going on now or are causing. Now, the issue of... Um, is it geoengineering or eugenics? Um, there's no reason to suggest that it's an either or proposition. I would think that geoengineering is a, a, a population killer because if they change the planet uh, to the point where it's acidic and suited for the, um, uh, you know, a, a green slime space alien crabs that are doing all this behind the scenes, then obviously humans won't be around. So it, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think if it is geoengineering in that sense, then uh, there will be a drastic uh, effect on the human population as well as the other life, and we're seeing that right now. Uh, large uh, extinctions and die-offs. Now, this could be part of a natural extinction cycle, which occur in any event, and I think that that is the case, that we're into one of those. Uh, but who knows what effect the um, geoengineering or the spraying of the chemtrails is having. If it were directly, I've often thought, well, if it's a direct, if it's an assault on humans uh, that they want to pollute, want to pollute and kill humans, it's really a slow and stupid and uneconomical way to go about it. And so, in that sense, I know the military mindset. The military mindset uh, is basically would be expressed as the idea: Oh, you want us to gas them? Sure, we'll gas them. They'll all be dead in 20 minutes. And then the politicians would say: No, no, no. We want them dead in 50 years. And the, and the military guys are going to say, no, that makes no sense at all. They wouldn't, wouldn't operate that way. So, uh, so if it is someone that is attempting to do a uh, slow poisoning in a very selective fashion, again, it's an uh, it's incredibly inefficient way to approach it. I mean, beyond, beyond any level of understanding. I also often wonder, you know, how they they dispose of fluoride is a what I believe is derived from aluminum, and they no, actually it's a steel process. Uh, steel waste. process. Yeah. So they actually put it in the in the local water supply. I wonder if so many people are protesting about this that now they're taking aluminum instead of disposing it the right way. Why don't you spread it around, you know, cities to make people dumb and stupid and and you know create Alzheimer's and all sorts of of disease. I could buy the idea that they're using aluminum in an uh, approach to dumb everybody down, but I don't see it as using it as a waste product because they've got to go to some ex uh, trouble to get this refined aluminum at that grade uh, into the um, into the chemtrail mix. For bear in mind, aluminum is uh, 
or bauxite is the, the second most prevalent ore we've got on the planet, but it's extremely hard to extract into uh, and make into a metal that's useful, which is why aluminum is such a late uh, rival in our uh, metallurgic history. Okay, it wasn't, uh, I mean, we had, uh, humans start with stuff that's simple and we work our way forward. So we started with tin, we started with copper and gold, easily malleable metals that we could locate and that had a tendency to clump together in nature. We then went on to the... Um, uh, more denser metals of iron, etc., which uh, would be more slightly more dispersed because ferrous metals have a tendency to rust out, and they're sort of a, just sort of a reddish soil as opposed to a copper vein that you might actually find, and so or gold or silver where you can actually find veins of the things running in rock, and so uh, aluminum is even further down the chain there as a more sophisticated metal because it's just built into the into the substrate of the whole planet, and you can just grind up basically. If you wanted to go to the trouble, you could probably dig deep enough or far enough in on almost any place on the planet and find sufficient quantities of bauxite in order to make a uh, usable uh, aluminum out of out of it. But it's a very sophisticated process that's very high in in energy. And then they take that aluminum and then they further refine it to get it to the five nines grade pure that they're dumping out of the airplanes. It's not waste aluminum that's up there. This is a microparticle aluminum that that. Uh, that after the huge electrical cost of zapping the bauxite and creating it and pouring it into aluminum, they then had to take this aluminum and uh, refine it even further with even more cost. So it's not disposal of a waste product. With the case of fluoride, you had a huge mountains of the stuff piling up in the east as a result of the steel uh, industry uh, producing it. And one of the... the um, Apocryphal tales is that you know they said, "Aha, we've got so much of this. Why don't we just let the people eat it?" And right. That's when they that's when they started shoveling it at, at us. Uh, but um, the, it's not the same case with uh, chemtrails. It's highly sophisticated level of engineering, as we see by their dispersal. Uh, you know, they now have uh, they started off and they've grown their ability to disperse. Uh, multiple kinds of chemtrails. They've got them on stop and uh, start action now, so they can make little puffy clouds. Whereas before, it was uh, initially it was these rainbow oily smears. I haven't seen those for years. I used to actually be able to sit here on my back deck and take photographs of large um, rainbow effect uh, oil-based clouds floating overhead and and see them and take photos with my digital camera because they were casting rainbows in that cloud itself. And it would just float on by. Strangest thing you've ever seen. And uh, it was not a generalized rainbow and or any of this. And it was related directly to the chemtrails and I think to the uh, crude level of the process at the time. And we just don't see those anymore at all. Now we see this extremely effective uh, gray slime that can, you know, four planes. And you've got uh, two hours later, you've got gray slime uh, in an area 60 miles by 120, uh, which is basically what they do for Puget Sound is they, uh, they smear us with this slime and then they spray continuously and it blows to the east. Now, at first, I, I thought today, oh, they're attempting to make snow here, but the type of um, uh, chemtrails they're spraying at the moment, I doubt that's the case. I think that whatever they're doing at the moment is going to be, um, is designed to have an impact further inland as the winds bring up, uh, come up to later tonight and into tomorrow. And this, uh, is my la this is my last thought on, on chemtrails. I will move because we have so yeah. many other topics. But, you know, I wonder if how much influence they have over the weather service because sometimes I see they report for tomorrow, oh, it's going to be cloudy. And I wake up in the morning and I see the planes, no real clouds in the whole day. And after they spray for a couple of hours, the entire city is clouded. So what influence do they have on the weather service to report that it's going to be cloudy, but it's based on the chemtrails? 
they, well, they own the, the weather service. Yeah. I mean, the, the individuals that may protest are quickly uh, eliminated and gotten out of there. Uh, you know, it is re- estimated that there's three CIA employees working in every single radio and uh, TV station in every single one of the major markets. And maybe even down into the second tier, which would be the top 55 sta- uh, cities in the United States. If that were the case... Uh, in some of these stations, that would mean that, that one-third of the staff was working for the government surreptitiously. And I have no doubt of that at all, uh, that, that indeed there are um, agency controls placed on the media at all levels, and uh, they report troublemakers, and, you know, they can be um, uh, very easily dealt with with the uh, mechanics of the uh, society that we have at the moment. They don't have to take anybody out and shoot them for questioning uh, this kind of thing. They're just reassigned or, you know, they get a bad review and they're fired. You know, it's a very iffy business to begin with. You're never really sure what's happening. You know, uh, entertainment per se is a... Um, uh, probably one of the riskier businesses around in terms of just the uh, flavor of the month kind of a deal. So, and people are fired just because their hair doesn't look right. And so is that the case or were they asking the wrong questions of the wrong people? And this brings me back to Edward Bernays, the father of uh, propaganda. You know, you see news right now being read from a script. You can change channels at the same time and it's pretty much word by word the same thing. The same thing's happening in schools now. Teachers are reporting that Common Core is taking individuality from the classroom. Do you see this standardizing of everything in the future? No. Actually, this is the last gasp of the dying old order. And it uh, it's not going to be effective. We're not going to go into a dark 1984 uh, or, you know, um, THX 1138 kind of vision of the future. It's not going to be that regulated and it's not going to be that controlled. In fact, it will be the exact opposite of that uh, from the viewpoint of, of um, the unenlightened individuals. We're going to go into a period of chaos um, for a number of years, perhaps uh two, three, four generations. could be hard to say. Uh, the effects are going to be felt in different ways and, and the chaos is going to arise from different sources. So, for instance, we won't go the way the control freaks want us to go because the heavy-handedness, heavy-handedness with which they're operating, the fact that they've taken the velvet glove off and they're smacking people around and shooting the dogs and shooting people just on the uh, intimidation factor – is a sure sign that the state has lost its legitimacy. There is no longer any acquiescence on the part of the populace to say, oh, hi, Mr. Policeman, here, let me buy you a donut and coffee. It's so cool having you patrol my street. These days, the police are seen as the enemy. This is a sure sign that the statists are losing their power in terms of their um, uh, ability to control the mind. And through that, uh, I mean, their propaganda has failed. You can use propaganda uh, is, uh, for tremendous gains to a certain point. And it's, so it's one of these, you know, you can't fool all the people all the time kind of a thing. It, propaganda wears off. Conditions change, but the propaganda doesn't. And that's why it becomes glaringly obvious. So conditions change. And one day you happen to tune from one station to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's all the same script. And it suddenly dawns on you. Why isn't the news different from one station to the next? Why is my local guy telling me the exact same thing that the national guy just did? Why it's, you know, they want me to, to repeat this over and over and over again. And eventually it, it starts um, wearing off on larger segments of the population. It becomes self-reinforcing. And we're at that point right now. Further, they're 
there are other more key issues that will force the statist and in fact are already forcing the statist to take that velvet glove off to become very, very aggressive. And that is the sure sign of their failure. As Gandhi observes, you know, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, and then they fight you, and then you win. Right. Well, we're at the state where they're fighting us. Now, if we're really smart, we won't fight back the way they expect, and they'll collapse. What about the, well, I'm just thinking of Andy of Mayberry and how, how different it looks now. The 1.6 billion bullets that are supposedly going to be purchased in the next five years, uh, equivalent of 105 years worth of purchases, the close to 3,000 armored cars for, for DHS. Yeah, What's yeah, your take on that? Okay, let's let's stop and say right there that that's fear-mongering, that simply repeating those numbers without also stating five years, how the absolute, uh, you know, uh, friggin' hell are they going to pay for it? They can't. They can't buy anything these days. Our military is crumbling now. Uh, the United States empire is crumbling now. The Western empire is crumbling now because of currency de debasement that is so egregious that uh, the system is coming unglued. And if anyone projects now that they're going to buy X number of millions of bullets over the next five years, I would say that's a very nice projection. Now, tell me how you're actually going to come up with the money three quarters from now to pay for that amount that you're going to purchase then. And then I might give you some credence that you could project out a year. But I doubt it seriously. All of the um, uh, here's the, here's the bind that the statists are in. Uh, and it doesn't matter what country you're in. To some extent, it's true in all countries that ha are dominated by a central bank. There are some countries it's less true, and that would be uh, China and Russia and uh, some of the Asian countries and India. But in most of the of the countries around here, the statists are now uh, in this in this really interesting uh, problem. Okay, and I'll describe it very graphically, just so that you get an idea of it. The statists uh, are pursuing a policy that they have for the last 45 years in the propaganda, which started the whole conversation here, of distorting economic numbers to control the mindset of the population. This is all well and good. They start off, they say, hey, Dow is rising. Look, look, look. You know, it's going to go over 10,000. Hooray, hooray. You know, all is good. I remember when, you know, Dow went over 1,000. And I also remember when everybody said at the end of the world, the Dow will be over 10,000. You know, as soon as we go over 10,000, the world ends in terms of the regular um, Wall Street kind of populace. But everybody got lulled into this uh, sense of understanding that the, the status wanted through the propaganda. But their problem is that they themselves are, are suffering the effects of their own propaganda. So they create a mental worm uh, that creates certain numbers or that is based on certain numbers that goes out into the populace. That mental worm causes effects within the populace that then feeds back into their system. And their system is using some of these feedbacks in order to generate these bogus numbers to begin with. And so it becomes very um, subtle over time, but it becomes a, a very magnified over time as well, especially in these latter days that we're in now where the effect of their bogus numbers generated five years ago is coming back to bite them in the, in the butt now. And none of the things they are doing will work. 
None of their um, projections will pan out because they're based on basically eating their own mind worms data and regurgitating it in a in an altered fashion. And then two years later, re-eating that same data, which has already been altered and distorted, and uh, further distorting it is such that even the statist, the, especially the statists, have no real accurate understanding of what's going on on any of the inputs for any of their models because the data is coming in and then it's coming in in this distorted fashion and it's been distorted for about 45 years now. Thus, they find themselves in a situation where even if they, they know they're lying, even if they know that they won't be able to um, uh, uh, buy the bullets five years from now, they don't know, or even two years from now, they don't know by how much they're lying. They have not got a clue. I know this to be a fact because I've worked at state government and seen the effect up close and personal and participated in it. And then years later, understood what my participation actually uh, uh, caused and what was going on. We were actually in a situation in a state government agency that fed this, the federal government numbers uh, that they used in their uh, quarterly calculations from Washington State for economic and other uh, money allocation purposes and so on. We were in the position of sitting down in a large committee, basically, and all colluding to lie on specific numbers to generate a specific response from the giant federal beast that thus would then feed us down at our lower level. Never mind that, that we were not providing the federal beast anything close to realistic numbers upon which to base its allocation process or the whole um, collection process or any of it. It, it was not even a consideration and was never brought up in the process of uh, creating these numbers that were then forwarded up chain. Now, I'm sure the feds do the same at every single part of their up chain. But do they ever question, hmm, is this being done to us down chain? That's right. So, so, so they won't they don't know. <laughs> so if they say, oh, we're going to buy 3000 tanks. They can't even tell me where they're going to be getting the steel from for those tanks three years from now because their numbers are so screwed. It seems that they're, as you say, fear-mongering to keep the population wondering. But now we're getting to the financial aspect uh, of the interview. You know, I, I read a lot of stuff this morning to prepare. Here's one. Ditching the dollar. Canadian province issues $2.5 billion in Chinese yuan bonds. Isn't this a clear warning to everyone, uh, as, you know, as you've seen? Uh, the clearest warning was the Chinese government the other day uh, I think last week coming out and saying um, it's not in our interest to accumulate further Western debt. Basically, they're saying we're not going to be buying any dollars anymore. That also, if there's a hidden subtext to that, which means we're getting rid of the ones we got. So, yes, this <laughs> this pretty much has been a game changer. The problem is, uh, Mel, that it's not going to be a uh, line in the sand. It's not going to be uh, an attack by another country on a specific day where you can say on this day of infamy, blah, blah, blah. This is going to be a, um, a change that the statist can't deal with. They could deal with that. If all of the populace that's really pissed, say that 3% of the, the global populace is pissed at all the lies and the distortions and the corruption of the statist. And the statist in their um, vast numbers only numbered uh, a quarter of a tenth of a percent. So we outnumber them in huge levels, and most of the populace is sheeple and isn't going to do anything either way. We could all rise up and attack the uh, statist and kill them all in a single day and be done with it. But they, the statists, that's their biggest fear. 
they they know that that can occur. They know they're hugely outnumbered. They fight and prepare for that their entire um, uh, mindset century after century after century. So it would be a sucker game for us to walk on in and attempt to do everything in a giant uh, you know global strike on a day that would lead to a global revolution or any of this. So the it's nice that Russell Brand gets out there and has this egalitarian um, you know sort of thing, in spite of the fact that he may be you know mind controlled himself and be nothing more than um, loyal opposition, uh, you know, to bleed off some of the energy. But uh, it's great that he's uh, uh, advocating revolution. But I'm here to tell you that you know it's already happened. They've lost. We're seeing the signs that they've lost now, and it's simply a matter of us keeping on, keeping on in the way in which we're doing to erode them all. So in this case, it's not going to be a um, uh, a global day of insurrection. There may come a, a single day in which there are huge things that occur as a result of momentum building over over this past decade. But it has been the uh, advent of the um, uh, alternatives to the currency wars that are going on between the central banks on a global fashion, on a global scale, that has reached a, a critical mass and gone beyond a tipping point. And so instead of the edifice of the state being brought down by the mobs, it's much more like there's a giant leak in the basement and everything that's a resource is draining out. And one day we'll just walk by and give a big puff and it'll all fall down because it's draining out drip by drip by drip by drip out of so many leaks they can't do anything about it and we know the desperation in their uh, voices rising that they've suddenly discovered that they can't do anything about the leaks and now they're trying to fight us and again it's on the you know ignore you ridicule you and then fight you and then you win well they're really starting just to fight us uh, at the economic level so we know we're about ready to win you know, now we're talking about China, and there's so much about China that I'm seeing uh, this morning. For example, I read that uh, you've heard about the Catskill Mountains. Uh, in New <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Have yeah. you read that? Yeah, what a bogus. Again, here they're, they're, they're saying that 600 acres of land, like A, 600 acres is huge. Right. It's not. It's a relatively small area. Uh, you know, in, in Texas, that uh, uh, you know, that might be the area that you would keep around your outhouse. It's it's that small, right? But nonetheless, they're also saying that the United States populace is going to pay for 20% of that. I think not. The powers that be don't have the, the money to control the populace anymore, let alone uh, gouge them for 20% of this um, uh, city of the future thing. So the, again, you know, it's a fear mongering and it's a nice projection, but it, there we're at a critical point and a shift in history where a lot of the stuff that's coming, anything coming out of media, especially that has any of the fear words attached to it, and especially those fear words that are targeted at specific demographics, uh, racist demographics and in, in the specific choice of the language that they use to, you know, discuss the Chinese, et cetera, right? And how it was uh, going to be uh, buy a green card uh, or a visa kind of a deal to invest in it from the Chinese view uh, perspective. Well, let me tell you, the Chinese are not really thrilled about coming over here anymore. Uh, this is a third world country to their their way of thinking. And they would probably have to have a large uh, Shanghai, uh, you know, Singapore kind of a city to get them the inducement to come on over because they don't want to live with the barbarians. And I can't say that I blame them. Uh, but uh, no, it's a uh, again propaganda that it's if it's a projection beyond next year, uh, forget about it. At the end of next year, 2014, you can say, okay, now we can make some projections that would have you know a one in twentieth chance of being realistic. And the reason we'll be able to do that is because there will be so much uh, chaos emerging and so much of the quote order that has been imposed on us these last 45 years will erode over this next year.
And look again, I'm looking at so much information coming from China. The they're they're racing their one child policy to two children policy. How about those ghost cities? You know what I'm talking about? Building mm -hmm. after building, shopping centers. What do you know about that? Well, there's a lot of uh, speculation that that was their um, response to a particular discussion that was originally brought up in 1937. Okay, in 1937, this economist looked at all the, uh, as part of a study that uh, Buckminster Fuller was also involved in at another level, he was looking at um, resources uh, at a planet-wide um, level for ore and uh, metals and stuff when this economist was looking at something else as part of this sort of global study that was done. It wasn't that coordinated, but in any event, this economist comes to the idea that the construction industry drives all, all um, countries that are operating on paper money into a depression and kills the economy. And why is this? Well, because the construction industries are key, are seen as so key, they're always subsidized, and that they always end up uh, consuming huge amounts of resources in ways that are um, basically hidden and capital intensive. So, for instance, most people are unaware that cement is the worst possible building material we could ever use because of the it's greatly energy intensive. And if we stopped using cement right now, we would reduce our energy consumption in the construction industry down by nine tenths. Nine tenths. So if we burn a billion barrels of oil a year, we would reduce that down to one tenth of that if we just stop using cement as a building material. Because of all this stuff we have to do to get cement. It's heavy, requires all this water, you got to burn rock to get it, and it, huge amounts of pollution, and so on and so on. Bring so, hemp back. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hemp, well, that's what Buckminster Fuller was working on, too, was a pressed uh, paper and hemp fiber kind of uh, a cement that didn't have a lot of the negative attributes, but had a lot of the positive attributes of cement, but as an aside. But in any event, so the Chinese find themselves in this particular, industry, uh, particular quandary. As part of their growth, <laughs> Uh, in all countries, as part of the growth of the fiat currency run by the central banks, they uh, pump uh, vast quantities of debt into uh, the production of housing and large construction projects. This is how, for instance, we uh, got ourselves out of the last depression was not World War II, as many would, would uh, suggest. That was an after effect of our overproduction. We actually had to throw away stuff out of our shores in order to get our get it. Uh, to stop plugging up our our uh, uh, supply chain, so to speak, right? And so uh, that was what World War II was really all about. But the the prior to that, we got ourselves out of the depression with the militarization of our populace and these vast, huge construction projects, the dams, the roads, the Tennessee Valley Electrical Authority, all of this kind of thing. We could have just built ghost cities and would have had the same effect. It would have geared up a huge inflationary spiral that was related to the construction industry. So there was an article that was written by a Chinese economist, and I, I think it was in like the late, late 1980s, 89 or so, something like that, about um, uh, data from 1952 on in China. And he made the suggestion at that time that why one way we can always defeat the tendency for the construction industry to drive us into a depression is to isolate them, ring them in, find a desert some way, somewhere and say, go over there and don't bug us. <laughs> and, right. and basically keep building as long as it doesn't come into the situation of where you have to sell it as in the United States where we have 12 million empty houses. And yet they propose to build more 
And, you know, and they're going to have more of a problem selling those. In China, they've eliminated that as an issue at the moment by the way in which their central authority works. They don't have those things yet hitting the um, uh, economy in a really negative fashion, the ghost cities, I mean. However, the uh, two-child policy is a direct response to the 20-year impact that, that the construction industry is going to have as they keep building. And so they actually need population now. And then they also have another issue, which is the demographics of uh, male to female ch- uh, um, uh, ratio and when then specific demographics that are pointing to a, a potentially a huge problem of 200 plus million uh, males with no possibility of um, ever getting wives. And this is going to really distort their their social order in about another 11 years. And so they're they're kicking all this into high gear. And also now I think you'll start seeing the liberalization of all kinds of uh, social contracts within China relative to um, uh, well, China's verity is a relatively conservative society, and I think we'll see it uh, liberalized just as a response to the needs of uh, the huge testosterone pool they've created with their one-child policy. Well, when you think about it. Uh... If they know currency is is worthless, invest in construction and real estate for a rainy day and raise the birth rate from from one to two. It's great speculation. Correct, and it actually makes a lot of sense under that uh, under those circumstances. When they also observe, as they if you read Chinese literature, you find out what they're thinking about, and they really, to a certain extent, um, are arrogant in assuming that a lot of uh, Westerners don't. That is to say, uh, they assume a lot of Westerners don't read Chinese and don't pay attention. But they've been discussing such things as the you know dwindling birth rate of the Japanese and how it might be convenient 20 years from now to be able to take over Japan as their population is so will be so small relative to the Chinese need for more land. These kind of things. However, there's a couple of things. The uh, idea that the Chinese would invade the United States en masse, hmm, isn't really going to happen. Again, it's an economic issue, but also there's the social mindset of the Chinese. They used to do great things on the planet, and uh, they sailed around and uh, brought giraffes back from Africa to the Chinese emperor when um, the royals in Europe uh, were still uh, defecating in caves. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, that that is how far advanced the Chinese were. They had huge, giant Chinese junks that had uh, – uh, was, were so big you could play soccer at each end of the thing and not have the, the games interfere with each other, that kind of thing. And they sailed all over the planet. They came to the uh, western United States. Uh, they came to uh, the west coast of Asia. They intermingled with the local populations 1,500 years before Columbus. And so – At that point, though, the Chinese uh, themselves ran into an issue of their population reached a certain density level that required that more and more of the upper echelon uh, devote more and more of their attention to control of the population. And they were thus less mm, uh, empirically minded simply because they had such a huge population. It would be the same situation here, that if we had a population 10 times our size – you would find none of the issues of our country meddling with anybody else's affairs because our elites would be too busy trying to keep their butts uh, from ending up in a in a stew pot uh, from pissing off the wrong people within our own population. And that's basically the Chinese situation. So they can be aggressive to a certain extent. They, they understand that they're going to have to rule the planet uh, through the Chinese century at least. They are actually smart enough to be 
planning how to do this in a in an organized fashion, but they're also sort of reluctant to be involved in any of the mess. And I think there will be a huge uh, level of hands off. And unless it becomes irritating to the Chinese themselves, they're going to be not uh, too not as territorial as the um, invasive as the uh, as the Western elites. You know, I wonder why Christopher Columbus takes the credit for being the first one around this area. He just opened the route for Europe. But, you know, the Vikings and the Chinese were here. I've seen maps that preceded uh, Columbus being around here from the Chinese. Why do you think they didn't leave a, a, a more conspicuous footprint? They before? did. They left, they left huge footprints in the uh, Delta region of the uh, Mississippi, extending nearly a thousand miles into what we think of as the United States, but a thousand miles wandering uh, at the time by the river. So not a thousand miles straight, but a thousand river miles. There were stelae, uh, stels, these uh, carved obelisks left that had three and four languages on them. Uh, they were left with uh, hieroglyphics, hieratic, um, and uh, what we think of as a Sumerian uh, cuneiform. And uh, one other one, and I forget what it is, there were drawings and um, um, statuary in plenty, uh, vast quantities of relics, all of which the Smithsonian has been able to propagandize and keep under control. The, it extends to the, it goes to the extent that there were, at, to my knowledge, two huge cave complexes that have been shut off in the Grand Canyon. That I've heard were, that. Well, I know from a personal fact that this is the case, that there was something there because uh, I happened to have been in a situation where I was exposed to the uh, uh, the naked blunt end of the propagandistic force at the time they were doing that in the early 60s. Maybe maybe it was late 50s. No, it was early 60s. Uh, I'm so old I have to stop and think for a second. Anyway, though, um, but uh, so there were Egyptian artifacts there. There were also um, huge levels of carving in the uh, walls of the Grand Canyon that was, you know, intelligent carving, not, not river carving. And then we go even further. We find, for instance, the whole of Australia in the uh, south coast, there are caves filled with Egyptian artifacts. This goes to the extent that locals in Australia, misreading the situation, say, aha, the um, indigenous population, which they call the Aborigine, were uh, so advanced 40,000 years ago that they sailed to Egypt, picked up all this stuff as tourist items and hauled it back. Well, no, it didn't happen that way. The Egyptians sailed all over the planet and left artifacts in Americas uh, long before the Chinese. And they also left uh, artifacts all over Polynesia. And then, and we can uh, trace the design of the ships and the sails and everything from Egypt all the way around the planet, basically, through the Polynesian um, influences. And I can get into the sail types and, and how the boat evolved and all of this. But uh, that core, these the Egyptians were sailing around, or what we think of as the Egyptians, the pharaohic peoples, um, were sailing around um, probably about 800 years before the Chinese did and uh, had very extensive knowledge of Australia, the trade winds all the way through the Polynesias, uh, Polynesian islands. They uh, left records in uh, Hawaii. All this stuff has been <laughs> propagandized right out of existence, just like the elongated skulls and all the uh, abos, the out-of-place artifacts, you know? Any of those out-of-place artifacts, right. if they if they pop up, officialdom comes down, you're met with an offer you cannot refuse one way or another, and off it goes. Because it can't be allowed to disturb the uh, mindset that allows the Zionistic uh, central banking system to control us. Because it is some kind of a proxy for something that is behind it. I do not for a minute believe that the 
evil uh, uh, that the banksters do ends there. Uh, the vibrations that come out of the suffering and so on is part of a larger plan that they are unaware of. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I can get really spooky at that level and say that there's space aliens out there, you know, uh, pulling chains that in turn, you know, give the Rockefellers their power and all of this kind of thing and the Rothschilds. And at some level, we can we can actually track evidence back that that suggests that is the case. So it's all part and parcel of the whole mess. You can't have an academic understanding that supports Christianity when there's so much to say that it never happened. Uh, you can't have an academic understanding that supports Columbus being the great discoverer of an empty co a continent when there's so much evidence of, you know, that the whites came over here and murdered 30 million indigenous population and took it over and knowing that they were going to do that ahead of time and that Columbus's participation was simply blown out of proportion as a PR stunt centuries later. And Columbus may not have been uh, Italian. He uh, supposedly he was a Sephardic Jew who was born in Catalonia, and uh, because the persecution of the Inquisition at the time, he wanted to to uh, get to the New World. But saying that he was a Jew would not have cut it with the with the Queen and the King. So that's why he changed the story. But as you say, out of place in time and space, the Antikythera mechanism and so many other things. I'm thinking of the Egyptologists. Ninety five percent of them are Muslim. So if you tell them that, no, the pyramids are thousands of years much more older than you think, they tell you that it's not the case. Why is that? Well, they can't afford to have that at, at a personal level because then it would break their belief system. And, and why do we legislate for belief systems? In any culture, if you go and look at the uh, laws, you'll find that laws are concentrated in mind control. Control. Uh, you know, uh, taxes, that kind of thing. But also the other huge aspect of laws is all about belief systems. It used to be in the United States, we had open uh, 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 laws supporting belief systems, especially in the South, where they said, you know, uh, it's our belief system that uh, blacks are inferior. Therefore, blacks can't drink from the same um, uh, drinking fountain as whites. Uh, separate but equal, but you know, all of this kind of stuff. It was all cover up because basically their Christian belief system structured there said blacks were unequal and, and could not, this couldn't, couldn't be. And when they had laws to enforce this and make it legal, as everybody keeps pointing out, and we need to say it again, everything that Hitler did was legal. Everything Obama does is legal. Everything that Jamie Dimon, the, you know, great rapist of the financial system does is legal. So, uh, laws and the authority, um, uh, not necessarily moral <laughs> or even effective. So the going back to China for a moment, the Senkaku Islands, what do you think is, is, is happening there? Are they showing some of their military might? They have to. There's, um, there's going to have to be a confrontation at that level uh, simply because our empire is dying. And as I say, the gloves are coming off. And if the Chinese kowtow, which is the Chinese word, to the uh, um, Western people one more time, uh, that will extend the situation further into the future, and they don't have to anymore. They know that a single uh, day they could bring down our economic system without even having to fire a shot just by uh, effective propaganda on their own. They know that it's crumbling uh, without their work doing having to do anything. And so they're just sort of content to sit back and let it happen. But they're always going to be um, aggressively defensive in what they perceive as their uh, national interests. And one of the things, of course, that's underneath these uh, islands, especially all over Japan, where the new volcanoes and everything are popping up, is energy, uh, geothermal as well as oil, natural gas, and so on. So 
there's a underlying if you'll note we're we're at a key inflection point in history every single continent uh is undergoing some kind of an energy rush at the moment in russia they chose to do deep uh well drilling and they started years and years ago and they went really deep and they perfected it over here uh the western powers chose to be shallow as their thinking is always shallow and shallow and is not deep and doesn't extend into the future and so they decided to to do fracking okay very shallow wells that try and force out uh, lots of oil in the surface as opposed to deep wells that would go down to a source and so fracking uh they also uh, has a side benefit for the western powers in that it requires lots of people temporarily but it's a short-lived solution uh extremely short-lived and it's a sign of uh, of a key inflection point and here's where we're at uh we've proven that peak oil exists and that peak oil occurred in 2005 so let's assume just because it's easy to think about it in terms of these numbers that there was 2 uh, 2 trillion barrels of oil on the planet and we've we've gotten out 1 trillion uh barrels of oil so far in our uh, 200 plus year history of mucking about with this stuff and uh uh we got basically we picked all the easy fruit hanging on the tree now if we want to get any other of the the oil we've got to work for it here's our problem though at this moment the amount of uh notional and claimed debt in the plant on the planet is such that if we took all of the rest of the oil on the planet the other trillion barrels of oil they're going to be harder and harder and harder and more expensive to get and produce less and less actual usable energy as an end result if we took all of those and they were basically given to us free without us having to put any energy into getting those other trillion barrels of oil we still could not burn that oil in a manner that would be productive enough to be able to earn enough to pay off the debt that we've got right now and debt grows year after year after year in fact is getting into a situation where it's basically starting to get to near doubling or reaching an exponential growth period over the course of a single year so uh peak oil is uh, uh reached at the same time that we have peak debt in a sense and peak debt trumps no matter how much oil we pump it's downhill from here guys we'll never be able to um work our way out of the zionist debt uh, monster that uh, debtberg that they've created it's all under the surface and when it starts rising it's going to swamp out all of the currencies and destroy the financial system now that doesn't matter its financial system needs to go it's uh, i wanted to bring up the subject anyway but um there's this uh, person out there who's a um, uh, whistleblower for the IMF the international monetary fund now bear in mind that none of these labels are accurate okay the international monetary fund should actually have a label that says um interest rate apartheid um uh rapers of third world countries <laughs> a good one and the decimate and decimators of their population because that's what they do their whole purpose is to get countries in debt so that they can sell off the proceeds to their buddies back in the western world kick off the indigenous population or kill them if they get in the way such that these guys can have a nicer life with the resources that this debt produced neo-feudalism no not even that it's worse than neo-feudalism because in, in feudalism the there was actually an incentive for the feudal lord to keep uh, a certain level of population going just to support his lifestyle now it's the other way around it's the economics of extinction so for instance uh, in the economics of extinction it makes sense for a factory trawler to go on out 
and and harvest as many tuna as they can now, even knowing that they're going to bring the extinction of the tuna five years earlier, and they're harvesting them and freezing them, waiting for that extinction to when they can then raise the price up to vast levels beyond understanding and recoup uh, all of the money in the five years of freezing them. That's actually ongoing at this moment, is this economics of extinction. And so the economics of extinction are also applying at the real estate level for things like the elites and um, uh, the, 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 you know, like the Bush uh, clan buying all of the water in Paraguay, that kind of thing. It's like, okay, guys, you know, you all go and drink it. I'm sure the locals will let you once all, thing, all this breaks down. But anyway, getting back to my, uh, my point here, there's this, this woman who's a whistleblower for the IMF. And it's great that she's a whistleblower and I applaud her efforts on, on uh, you know, talking about the corruption and everything at the IMF. But she's coming at it from a, a wrong perspective. The IMF is not an organization that needs to be whistleblown. It is a, a criminal gang. And so it's not like a, you need a whistleblower to drop out of the mafia and tell you that the mafia is bad. You Are you know? talking about a Karen Hudis, the World Bank exactly, whistleblower? Exactly. Okay. So, yes. And but she's doing a doing a lot of disservice actually because she's coming up with this this her uh, the hidden subtext or the not so hidden subtext is we've got to work to reform this organization and save the dollar and it's like huh non sequitur here that does not compute we don't want the dollar saved because that's the source of power for the uh, oppressors that are killing us off. Uh, individually and in mass, that's the source of power for the uh, police state. That's the source of power for the Zionist bankers attempting to take over the Muslim world. That's the is source of all of the evil on this planet. Is the uh, currencies, is the fiat currencies, not just the dollar, but everything that's pegged to the dollar. You know, the fiat currencies of Canada, Britain, Australia, and so on and so on. And so uh, the fiat currencies are their source of power. So why should we work our butts off to reform an organization that is criminal to begin with and can't truly be reformed in that sense? Its mission statement is never, was never as stated, just like with the UN. And thus we get into a situation of where uh, I think she's uh, bleeding off, you know, well-intentioned or disinformation is not my call. But nonetheless, she's bleeding off in an area that, uh, is uh, should not be followed. We should not attempt to save the dollar. We shouldn't uh, give a rat's ass about the dollar. And in fact, we should all clap our hands and say, what can I do to get my ass out of the dollar? Because I just heard today that Larry Summers has had a big um, uh, conference speech in which he laid out the plan for how they can legitimately come along and level service fees against your savings account. And what are they going to do? They're going to tax you for not spending your money. Why, you evil saver. If you save money, you're not helping the economy and the government, which needs that money in circulation to maintain control over your mind and that of the uh, the people around you. So if you don't spend that money, why, the government's just going to have to take it from you at the rate of 47% each and every year of whatever you happen to have in your savings account at, the, at some date that they will not announce in the future, but will tell you after they've done it. And uh, this will be your incentive to spend, 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 and buy more cheap crap from China. Well, China isn't buying this. They know that that isn't occurring. The whole idea of um, a trade city in the East Coast is fear-mongering on somebody's part uh, because the the um, impetus there doesn't exist anymore, and the Chinese are well aware of that. In fact, if you look at all of the in Chinese internal documents that are coming out, you'll see that there's been a linguistic trend towards um, uh, internal focus that uh, – uh, is significant over like the last 15 years. You know, you mentioned Larry Summers, but how about uh, 
Janet Yellen, the the upcoming uh, Fed chairman in, in coming in January. She advocates to have negative interest rates. Isn't this a, well? I, I can't say legalized, but a more legalized way of confiscating funds in a different way than what we saw in Cyprus. No, it's part and parcel of the uh, the same process. It's what required the activity in in Cyprus. Zero interest rates are deflationary. Zero interest rates are zero interest rates to our friends. Let Mel or Cliff or anybody we know go to a bank and say, could you all give me a million on zero interest rates so I can go and speculate in the stock market and see what you get, sure. right? Okay, it's not going to happen. So uh, the zero interest rate business is um, is a misnomer and you have to look at the language and what they're actually saying. And Yellen, first off, is an extremely stupid woman. Um, I mean, this woman is dumb. And uh, they chose her for a lot of different reasons. And one of them is to be the patsy during these, these last few years of the dollar. And also because she's very predictable because she's dumb. And they, uh, she always basically does the last thing that's said in meetings. And this is confirmed <laughs> by some of her classmates. They can't believe she went this far. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, stupid beyond understanding, but, you know, easily led, corrupt at her soul. Uh, we won't go into, you know, any kind of um, sexual blackmail they're using over her because I don't know that they need to. She's probably so dumb it doesn't matter. Uh, so in any event, though, her, her, the, the level of stupidity that she enjoys is such that she is blinded to the actions of her language. Uh, she thinks they're, they're going to have a certain kind of a response, but doesn't understand how much she's revealing in what she actually says. And the other aspect of this is that, that her, um, that she's being used. And so you have to look at everything that she does as a, um, slightly obscuring steam on the window. You need to get off to see what's really going on back there. And they, they would not choose, uh, Yellen in 1987, uh, at the time of that crisis, because they wanted the system to last. And so they chose Volcker because Volcker was not stupid. Okay. Volcker may have been a lot of things, but he was not really dumb. Now, uh, why do you choose as the, the head of your company, a really dumb person? Well, because you need a patsy. And so, you know, they, they give Patsy's different names and one of them might be Ken Lay from Enron, a really dumb guy who managed to make it all the way up to the point where he died the day he was supposed to go to jail. Uh, so it's kind of like, well, um, you know, the, the subtext there, what's going on in the background, I think Yellen was chosen because at this particular point in history, they needed a really stupid person to make some really egregious moves that were going to, uh, be used to obscure the, the things that are going to occur anyway. And they know that this is happening now. The issue for them has been uh, rather startling though, because see, here's, here's the problem. The Zionistic bankers, uh, the, uh, uh, quatreur, the, the four party rulers. It's not a triumvirate. It's a four party. It's the military. It's the bankers. It's the uh, politicians and it's the media. And this, this, uh, cobble, uh, expected that the next, uh, assault that they would have to face in keeping their power would be felt and dealt with by the military. And that the gloves would come off, the population would rebel, and the military would beat the absolute crap out of us and kill as many as they possibly could and establish a police state that might last 150 years because of the total level of control that had been outlined in things like 1984 and other um, prophetic or forecasting literatures. And that was actually their plan. And then uh, in 2009, things changed. 
And whether you say it was, you know, uh, driven by, um, uh, uh, how do I want to say it, uh, allegiances or whatever, for whatever reason, I say that the uh, universe, the vast collection of, of the totality and sum of all human experience demanded that an alternative present itself at this time and alternatives did present themselves. And one of the alternatives that has survived is uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which are eroding the very soul of the power elite, which exists on that uh, energy exchange that is within currency, and that they have been taxing and bleeding us through that for countless generations now, and it's going away. And the peer-to-peer -peer nature of the uh, cryptocurrencies and the new currencies that are arriving in this currency uh, competition or war is going to be something that they can't control, that they're going to try everything they can do to uh, to um, disrupt and uh, uh, taint, and it's not going to work. And we've already won in that regard. We've crossed critical thresholds. And unfortunately for the power uh, that be, uh, we're not going to respond if we're smart in the way they want, which is large crowds of people on the street that they can beat with clubs and shoot, shoot with their guns. But I can tell you right now that five years on, they won't have dollars to buy bullets because the dollar won't be there to buy the bullets and no one will be accepting it. I won't be dealing in dollars next year. It's, it's interesting how I'm thinking of the next subject and, and you bring it up. So I'm glad that we, we have this flow. But I was reading a financial publication this morning and I see that the Central Bank of China has banned financial companies from Bitcoin transactions. And their excuse... The warrant of danger currency is used for criminal activity. What do you think of <laughs> yeah, that? That's, I know, that's absurd, too. Well, let's look at this, too. That's their, their standard. What they're saying, Let's uh, linguistically, let's look at what all the banks are saying. Bitcoin bad. Fire bad. Be scared. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, be scared of this. Be scared of this. Because if you'll note, uh, Bitcoin, uh, in terms of its total market capitalization, is so small that we could not handle one day's worth of money laundering that goes through HSBC. We couldn't handle 25 minutes of money laundering that goes through Goldman Sachs because the total amount of people involved in the Bitcoin network and everything is so small relative to the huge amount of corruption. So that's a huge spurious argument. There can't be any kind of criminal activity that is in a meaningful way associated with Bitcoin. And that's their that's their that's why they're pissed. They don't control it. They can't hide their crimes with it. They can't profit with it. And that's why they're pissed. And they're going to come on out and do all kinds of things like they're going to create their own fake cryptocurrencies and try and uh, pollute the market they're already doing that we think one of the their um the pump and dumps that they're using is called quark coin so i would advise people to be really intelligent if they get into the cryptocurrencies look to bitcoin look to its um uh, backbone model um uh, the blockchain and how that works and if you don't see true peer-to-peer -peer in a cryptocurrency it may not be it may be a pump and dump scheme especially if the you know there's 98 of the currency mined at the time you discover it and it's you know quadrupling in value every third day they're selling it to themselves back and forth to raise the price and then they're going to dump it and they hope to do this in order to um uh, taint the whole cryptocurrency market. Now, in my way of thinking, it was great news that China's central bank came out and said, oh, you can't deal in this, because now it actually points out the internal conflicts within the central organization of China themselves. There's a whole lot of companies in there that, that are in this situation, but let's just concentrate on one, which is Baidu. 
which is the Chinese version of Google. Every bit as big as, as Google, in fact, much larger than Google relative to the Chinese population and relative to the economics that that, mean, uh, that, that provides. So Baidu is, is going to be the Google of the planet and will uh, destroy Google Google <laughs> a little, little further down the road. But at the moment, Baidu accepts Bitcoin. And Baidu has some really tight connections in terms of its ownership to uh, the central authority within the Chinese political structure. So what's going to happen there? Hmm. You got one part of Chinese officialdom, the central bank, telling another part of the Chinese officialdom uh, that it's going to do this or that or whatever. It's like, well, uh, I read these things. Again, I, I assume that there's a certain propagandistic bias to it. They're obviously attempting to uh, dissuade people from doing things with um, Bitcoin. It caused a momentary swoon in prices, which if I had any way of buying more, I would gladly take advantage of. But, um, you know, it happened so quick in the, um, the Bitcoin world that it just does, you can't really trade it. It doesn't really exist that way. But in any event, the uh, the Chinese central bank, it's like, hooray, hooray, yet one more central bank against Bitcoin. And this is good because Bitcoin does not need official acceptance. Official acceptance is a negative for Bitcoin to a certain extent. Although Bitcoin is anti-fragile, it'll overcome all of this because uh, it's basically not a currency alone the way that the central bankers would have you believe. There's If you really stop and think about it and go back to the satoshi nakamura or nakamoto excuse me satoshi nakamoto original white paper bitcoin is two things and they probably should have been named in two different ways one is the protocol the um the blockchain which now is uh, the largest single computing entity on the planet that we're aware of outside of the nsa more computers are are participating in the in the bitcoin blockchain than any other activity and uh, it's growing exponentially, and that's its strength, uh, but it's also a currency. So we can think of Bitcoin with a, a, a big B, uh, which would be the, the blockchain. And then we can think of Bitcoin with a little B, which is the actual currency that floats across it. And so here the central bank is saying, well, you know, this is a bad, and they're trying to put a big B on it. But their ability to influence things other than with their words and the temporary price change is minimal. They can't uh, short Bitcoin. You can't uh, do a naked short on it and cause its price to fluctuate that way. If you had millions of them, which don't exist, you could sell them into the market, but then they're gone. And you can't repeat that because you can't infinitely create them the way they create uh, paper gold, for instance, in the Western market. And they infinitely create paper gold and sell it in there to suppress the price of real gold. And the universe, the sum total of all human experience uh, ever, says to itself, hmm, this ain't right. We need an alternative. And up pops Bit Bitcoin just at the point where the um, institutionalized corruption is so severe that, uh, sure, certain proof that cannot be argued as such is brought to the authorities of manipulation of the gold, the silver, the forex, the LIBOR, and all other markets on the planet that the Western powers in any way engage in are absolutely manipulated, and yet the authorities do nothing. They say, okay, that's fine. We know about that. Y'all go away. And um, at that point in the universe, it said, well, okay, you know, something's got to crack. And through that crack came a thought to um, um, our mythical buddy Satoshi, who wrote a white paper and then started mining coins. And everybody said, well, hey, I will freely accept this because the alternative is something I don't want to freely accept. And it's forced on me by these nasty people with guns. And so better I should 
take this course. And there's more of us doing that now every day than there are people that are willing to sit there and have this other stuff foisted on them by guns. The people with guns know this. The whole system is breaking down from their viewpoint. From my viewpoint, the whole system is breaking open. We're having a huge explosion in terms of creativity with Bitcoin as a, as a funding source. We're getting all different kinds of um, technologies to emerge. And it's the new electrics. And we're about to just bust loose as the old system is dying. So it's very much a situation of um, got all of us humans out here just scurrying around doing all kinds of really cool things. Uh, sort of watching out for the shadow of these dinosaurs as they're getting ready to fall over. You've been talking about this for, gosh, years, and I have to tell you, it's finally, finally catching my attention. And, you know, why is China all of a sudden banning it? And I think it's because I saw the news. No, no, China, be careful of your language. Sorry, Mel. China didn't ban it. There's many companies there that are still using it in spite of the central bank saying that they, they can't use it and be taxed on it. It's only the central bank recently okay. that, uh, that said that. Central banks. The reason why they're saying that, I think, it's because the yuan – finally pass the euro as the number two currency for trade and they don't want any competition right it's a much more complicated than that okay because the chinese are not a, a simple people there's a subtext within the chinese central authority that does not want the yuan as the um, global reserve currency they don't really want in spite of the fact that it favors them at some level they don't want the um currency responsibility of of uh, people issuing bonds you know in their currency from other countries it's happening they're trying to control it and they would prefer not to have their their currency be the global reserve currency because it allows them much more freedom at an internal level once you become the global reserve currency then actions done at an internal level uh, have an immediate um, no barrier repercussion because it flows through your currency so to speak uh, throughout the whole planet whereas if there's a barrier in the sense of a forex trading your currency has to be traded for dollars before there can be any kind of an energetic ripple then there is at least that level of a firewall and that kind of thing adds to the freedom that you have in terms of the responsibilities of what you can do with your currency makes sense it does, and if it becomes okay. a if it becomes a, a a foreign reserve currency as the dollar or the euro, wouldn't that inflate it, and that that way the the their exports would suffer? Um, that's a spurious argument proffered by uh, most of the central bankers as to why there's an ongoing currency war attempting to debase currencies like MAD. Right, and and no, I'm uh, that is not the case. Actually, it strengthens their currency. Their um, it's kind of like, let me ask it you this way in 1945 at the end of or 47, at the end of world war two, the United States had, uh, 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 50% of the planet's resources in, in gold and, um, money and had the strongest currency on the planet. And yet we also had the strongest, uh, two decades of exports ever. So why did that occur? If that argument is sound? If the if you need weak money for to have strong exports, then why did the United States enjoy such an export boom in the 50s and 60s? True, you can argue it was the military and all of this and dollar dominance and so on. But nonetheless, the the strong currency aided us during that period of time and was actually one of Larry Summers' frequent uh, mantras: "We need a strong dollar, a strong dollar to maintain exports." 
Now, of course, everybody's saying, oh, no, you got to weaken your currency to get the export market. And so uh, it's much more complex than that. And the the idea of weakening the currency uh, just deliberately for the export market especially no longer applies to China because they've turned inward and they realize that their middle class has now reached a point where it can be nurtured into a self-sustaining internal um, demand uh, pool, if you will. And uh, somebody told me the other day, as he was discussing Bitcoin, he said the dollar is backed by guns, planes, tanks, and sheeple willing to die to protect it. Do you agree with that statement? It's easier to, than that. Dollar is backed by death. Backed by death. Interesting. It has never been backed by anything else. That's uh, right. Once, you know, the, even the gold that we had was uh, obtained at the death of the indigenous population of the various areas that we had to clear out in order to get the gold. You know, uh, specifically the Apache and the Comanche and the Cherokee all had great resources that had to be had they had to be shifted off so just in the beginning of our treasury getting the gold that originally was in fort knox and isn't there anymore uh it was backed by death it wasn't like we just walked off and found the gold on on a piece of land no one was uh, living on uh we invaded and took it over because the resources were there so the dollar's always been all central currencies are backed by death there's something you can really look at too Real true uh, statement. You know, actually, there there was a statement, I think, once by Buckminster Fuller, and he says, if someone can't explain something to you in 35 words, they are uh, deliberately obscuring it or they don't know it. The more you understand something, the easier it becomes to simplify it so that someone else, so that you can communicate that understanding. And, and you have a tendency to do it through aphorisms, you know, small, short statements or pithy little statements and this kind of thing. And so the dollar has always been backed by death, but there's another really telling a uh, statistic that we can examine and know is true. There were no no global wars before central banks came into existence. That's exactly right. And uh, what happened in 1911 when they went to Jekyll Island? They started engineering this. 1913, it passed. Then 19, what? Uh, uh, 14. 14, yeah. we got World War One, and then the rest is history. But we have to take our one and only intermission, uh, Cliff. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about Bitcoin. We have a lot of questions from members of our audience who want to know more about Bitcoin. As I said, I'm new at this. And at this point, I'm thinking, is it too late to get into this uh, bandwagon? Has has it already left or is it going to continue going no, up? No, it's, it's so nascent. It is so young that uh, if I had the strength, I would stand out there and just shout, Bitcoin, you dumb son of a bitch, Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, for years, for years, you'll be able to state that. And I can, I, when we come back and I, I can explain why. And you have been saying this for years. I remember when you started, it was probably, you know, uh, in, in the one digit, two digits, three digits. It was, uh, when I first started getting on to Bitcoin, when I knew for sure it was what I had been looking for, I, I, I will say that I had been looking for a replacement for money, and I first thought it was uh, e gold. And then they came and they shut e gold down, and so I knew they weren't. We couldn't use a gold backed, and we had to arrive somewhere else. And then four years later, in 2009, uh, Nakamura's original paper came out, and I thought, aha, this is it. And then I waited. Because there was a, I didn't say anything because there was a birthing period and that, that birth was delicate. It was fragile and, uh, it, uh, Bitcoin survived it. It survived the early attacks it, that strengthened its immune system and it started to become robust. And then when Bitcoin had just passed the, uh, critical in my mind, uh, uh, $3 threshold, that's when I started telling everybody, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And I didn't want to be too ferocious about it. I mean, I was shouting, but uh, you know, I didn't want to really scream about it because, again, I didn't want to alert too many people too early, but I wanted to get Bitcoin into a community that it otherwise would not. And I took credit for that. And that's, um, you know, it's a failing on my part. That, But I, I posted it out there and told everybody, look, you know, 
uh, who else in the in the woo woo world and the world of channelers and you know other spooky strange things was telling you about Bitcoin way back when? None of these people knew because they're you know channeling and all that kind of stuff is bogus. And if you'd actually gotten in on Bitcoin at three dollars uh, when I was when I was talking about it, well, where would you be today? It's gone several hundred times over that. So and it's got yet several hundred times more to go. That's incredible. And when we come back, just one last statement before we take the break. I'm just thinking, it's 100 years since the Fed uh, came along. I remember, well, I wasn't alive back then, but Edward Bernays and his, his boys, they promoted the idea that the, the bankers at the time were corrupt and the people bought it, and that's why the Fed came along. Could Bitcoin, and I'll get your answer on the other side, could Bitcoin be a Trojan horse? And they could be planting this into people's minds so that we can fall into this trap. But when we get back, we'll, you'll tell us. How can people buy your reports, Cliff, and your website? Uh, you can just go to the website and uh, you'll find a Bitcoin address there. And you send me a, uh, a partial uh, chunk of a Bitcoin and I'll send you the report via email. Or if you want, you can use uh, dollars for a while here and go through PayPal. Or send us something interesting and we'll send you a report. Uh, if you send us something physical, you got to send an email address. We can email it to you, though. And I don't want any anything alive. No food, please. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But, no, but basically we're in barter because the dollar is just so terrible. We've got people that are sending us, you know, goods they produce, and that is fair exchange. And, that, and we consider that to be uh, an excellent fair exchange. We've had some very marvelous soaps come from people. Uh, incense and clothing and this kind of thing and it's a very fair exchange and the dollars eh, it's less of an exchange because I, all I can do is stick them in a bank for the government to come and take them you know a year or two ago I've had so many people ask me Mel can you take Bitcoin and I would just dismiss it as, as just woo woo but I wonder <laughs> if I had accepted all those Bitcoin subscriptions back then yeah. but anyway it's never too late. Start now. Put that poster out there. Bitcoin accepted here. <laughs> Folks, don't go anywhere. This is such a fascinating interview, and we have so much more to discuss with Cliff High, the master behind the webbot. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas on this fifth anniversary. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
This is the Karai Sitching, and you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel. Mm-hmm. 